Good morning to you. Semper reformanda. It means always reforming. And now today, some who say semper reformanda mean that we must redefine our doctrinal positions to suit the spirit of the age. And so to them, they use this term, semper reformanda, to mean always shifting, always evolving, always changing. But God doesn't call us to novelty in our theology. He calls us to biblical fidelity. Jude 3 urges us to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. That doesn't shift. That remains the same. Semper reformanda, when it was originally said back in the 1600s, was not a call to twist the text to suit our modern sensibilities. Semper reformanda was part of a, a wider, wordier, meatier Latin phrase that I will probably butcher. And it is this. Ecclesia reformata, semper reformanda secundum verbi dei. It means the church is reformed and always being reformed according to the Word of God. The church is reformed and always being reformed according to the Word of God. It means we must go back to God's Word and assess the faith we possess. Is it pure and unadulterated? Or is it tainted and truncated? Semper reformanda was a call to return to biblical Christianity. God's people must always be open to reformation whenever we discover deviation. This is the situation we find in the Old Testament in Nehemiah chapter 9, and Nehemiah chapter 10. And so with this in mind, I'd like for you to turn with me in the Word of God to Nehemiah 9. You'll find that on page 511 of the Blue Pew Bible in front of you. Nehemiah 9, page 511. As you turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together today. Lord Jesus, as Lord of this church, we invite You to speak to us with a roar, we invite you to tap on our shoulder. We invite you to, uh, in your gentle, still, small voice of your spirit, to whisper. But we pray, Lord, that you would get our attention. That you would show us where there could be deviation and drive us back to biblical consecration. May we, as those in the text today, recognize that there was a drift and they needed to come back. They needed to repent. They needed to realign and reorient their lives according to the God who gave them life. May that be what you do in our hearts today for the glory of Jesus and through the power of your Spirit we ask. Amen. So the Word of God says in Nehemiah 9, I'm going to read you the first five verses, and then we're going to spend a lot of time reading a lot of this lengthy statement of Scripture. The first five verses begin like this. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. 
and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. And they stood in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. And on the stairs of the Levites stood a number of individuals. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And then those individuals said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. All right, so Nehemiah 9 tells us the people of God stood. They stood as the Word of God was read. For three hours, that's what it means a quarter of the day, uh, they were using daylight as the day, and so a quarter of the day would have been three hours. And then the Bible says for another three hours, they confessed their sins and they praised the Lord. Now Warren Wearsby opines that in most churches today, a six-hour service three hours of preaching and three hours of praising and confessing would probably result in some requests for resignation. (laughs) But an old preacher once said, we used to sing, take time to be holy. And now we watch the time, but not our holiness. Lord, help us. Last time we were together, two weeks ago, before our, our brother from Chosen People came last week and gave a missionary moment, Uh, We looked at this passage, and we learned that this passage tells us that we need a proper understanding of God. And if you missed that, please go online and and figure that out. Listen to that. Hear that again. What we learned from this passage last time was primarily in Nehemiah 9. We We learned that we must understand God's greatness, we must understand God's goodness, and we must understand God's graciousness. Who God really is is all the more powerful, is all the more beautiful against the backdrop of who we really are. When you understand who you are and then you look at who God is, you will be amazed at who God is. It's much like when you you set a diamond against black velvet. It really shows you the contrast of the brilliance and beauty of the diamond. And and, and so, when we look at God against the backdrop of ourselves, you're going to see how great and gracious is our God. And so let's do that in our time now. Let's go to our second point in our outlines today. We need a proper understanding of ourselves. A biblical understanding, a, a true understanding of ourselves. And the first thing we must understand, if you're going to understand the human condition, is you must understand our neediness. We like to think that we are uh, uh, able to handle everything on our own, and we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and our mythology is that, that we're just these rugged individuals until we, we need you know, medication because we can't handle our situation driving to work, much less being at work. Like It's myth that we've got it all under control. So the first thing the Bible wants us to understand today is we must understand our neediness. And so perhaps truer words have never been sung at Calvary than what we sang today. Lord, I come, I confess. Bowing here, I find my rest without You. I fall apart. You're the one 
that guides my heart. Lord, I need You. Oh, I need You. Every hour, I need You. There's a reason we sang that today. We're going to end with a song that's similar later. Uh, I want us to look at the text and review the history of the people of God in this story. And you're going to see their neediness again and again and again. And it's to remind us of our neediness because we also are a needy people. And so I want you to look at verse 9. Verse 9, Nehemiah 9.9. If you're dyslexic, you can still find it. 9.9 works either way. And you're going to see we were needy when we were in slavery. Verse 9, And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt when they were slaves in bondage for 400 years. And you heard their cry at the Red Sea. And you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all of his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew they acted arrogantly against our fathers. We were needy not just in slavery, but we were needy when we found ourselves stuck between a Red Sea and a Pharaoh seeing red. When we were being rescued, we were about to be annihilated. And so in verse 11, the Bible says, and you divided the sea before them so that they went through in the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into the mighty waters. They were needy in slavery. They were needy in rescue. They were needy when they had no idea how to get from, from, from Egypt to the promised land. Um, we could have lost our way. We could have perished along the way in that desert where there was no food and no water and a million mouths to feed. How would they do it? They did it when God answered their need with clear direction. I want you to look at verse 12. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day. Against the backdrop of, the, of, the, of the, uh, the skyline of the desert, in the hot sun, there was this cloud, and it moved. And wherever it moved, you moved. And you know what? When you walked, you walked under its shade. In the hot desert, you had comfort and you had direction. But then at night, what would we do? We cannot see the cloud, O oh God. How do we know where to go? Well, God had a plan there too. And the Bible says, by pillar of cloud, you led them in the day. And by pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. There was no skyscraper and skyline. There was no twinkling of the cell phone tower. There was just night. And I'll tell you, when there's a pillar of fire, you're going to see it a long way off. You know who else saw it? It was intended to be used for the direction of God's people, but it also would scare off the other people from attacking at night because they had never seen something like this, had they? We were needy when we didn't even know right from wrong, God. Our hearts were corrupted. Our yearnings were polluted. We'd chase after the things that would destroy us if left unto ourselves. And so we have verse 13. And you came down at Mount Sinai and you spoke with them from heaven and you gave them rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. We were needy when we were so dumb that we would work ourselves to death. We would work seven days a week. We would work ourselves to the bone, always trying to get that little bit farther ahead in life. We could easily live for our careers. We can make an idol out of, out of what we do for a living. We can squander our lives on our hobbies instead of pursuing the heavenlies. It would be so easy to do. And so God, verse 14, He said, I'm going to help you here. He said, I'm going to make known to them my holy Sabbath. Sabbath wasn't installed. Man wasn't there for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was there for man. Because He knew that we would come apart if we didn't come apart and rest 
and focus on what the locus of our life should be. We were needy, unable to find bread in that desert. And lacking water as they went through this parched land, how are they going to keep everyone alive? Verse 15, and you gave them bread from heaven. Like it literally rained bread, this miracle manna stuff that had never been seen before and would never be seen again. When they enter the promised land and can eat the, the fruit of the land, the miracle didn't need to happen anymore. But when the miracle needed to happen, God met the need. He made it rain down bread because He's the bread of life. And, and, and He brought water for them, verse 15, out of the rock. Now water comes from a lot of places, streams, desalinization plants, expensive bottles of water at Starbucks. It doesn't come from rocks. Unless God says it's going to. And then in the middle of the desert where there's no water, from the source where no water can come, water comes to meet our need. You gave them bread from heaven and for their hunger and brought water from the rock of their thirst. How could they have marched for 40 years when there was no great corral of cattle of which to find leather to make sandals for their feet? They're going to walk on the hot desert floor for 40 years. The hot sand would burn their tender children's little feet because even those who had shoes when they went, not that they would be able to keep those shoes for 40 years of marching, but there are going to be some that are born that had no shoes. And shoe carnival wasn't open at all. So what are you going to do? The elderly would suffer greatly against that hot march. And so verse 21, 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. God provided where there was no provision. Even when a remnant returned to the land, even when we're in the book of Nehemiah, even after the captivity, even when they're finally back and a, and a remnant of 50,000 came back and a couple other remnants returned and they finally built the wall, they're still under the thumb of the Persian potentate and his crushing taxation and painful subjugation. And so in Nehemiah's day, the people had not outgrown the neediness of their forefathers. Even as things were, were marginally better, they were still a long way from God's ideal. And so we have verse 36 in the Bible. Behold, we are slaves to this day in the land that you gave your fa our fathers to enjoy its fruit and good gifts. Behold, we're slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings who you have set over us because of our sins. We're in this position because of our iniquity. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Do you understand how needy we are? Acts 17 sets us straight. I think it's in verse 28. In Him we live and we move and we have our being. If you're alive, it's because God, the author of life, is granting you breath. If you move today, it's because in Him He gives you the ability to fire those synapses, to make those circuits work, to send that down your spine, to cause those muscles to jerk. And there are people today who God has taken away their ability to do those things. Because as self-sufficient as you think you are, you're not. You're needy. But God does not need us. There's another verse in Acts that tells us that God doesn't need us, but boy, we need Him. The Bible says he is not served by human hands, Acts 17.25, as if he needed anything. But he himself gives us life and breath and everything else. The God who needs nothing gives everything. Because he's good. 
and we're needy. He's not needy, and we're not good. He's good, and we're needy. God does not need us. In Job 1.21, the Bible is correct. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The only thing you and I bring to our salvation is our neediness and our sinfulness. That's all we bring to the equation. What do we bring to our salvation? We bring our neediness and our sinfulness. And everything beneficial comes from Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, the Bible says. Jesus is the only name under heaven by which you may be saved. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through the Son. If we are to really understand God, if we are to understand God's greatness and God's goodness and God's graciousness, then we must come to understand except our neediness. Number two, point B on your outlines, we must understand our sinfulness. We must understand our sinfulness. The culture will tell you that you are self-sufficient, and then it will medicate you because you can't handle it. Because we're not. The culture will tell you you're wonderful. Your spouse will tell you the truth. <laughs> Friend, do you know your neediness? And do you understand your sinfulness? See, God is so good. He rescued us from the bondage. He rained down manna from heaven. He gave water from the rocks. But oh, how our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. God did all this for them over and over and over again. And after all that God did, here's what we did. See if you can relate. Listen to verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously towards God. And they stiffened their neck against God. And they did not obey the commandments from God. Can you relate? Can you relate? Despite God's great grace, we did not keep our proper place. Listen to verse 17. They refused to obey. And were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. And they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. We want to go back to where we wanted to be rescued because we missed the leeks and onions of Egypt. And we're going to set up someone you haven't had lead us to lead us back into bondage. But you are a God ready to forgive, the Bible says. Gracious and merciful, the Bible says. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so you did not forsake them, amen? Verse 18, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf. Behold, this is our God. What an affront. Verse 18, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is our God who brought us out of Egypt. And they had committed great blasphemies. Now friends, this is not some outlier in human history. This is our steady and steadfast trajectory. We're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. 
But again, God in His grace reaches out to us. In His goodness, He reaches out to us. In His greatness and benevolence, He reaches out to us. And again, God lavishes His lavish love upon us, the objects of His great grace. We lack no good thing. But here's the thing. We weren't good. Listen to verses 24, 25, and 26. And see if you can relate to God's lavish provision in your life and our worldful perversion of His will in spite of it. Verse 24, So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and you gave them into their hand and with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they, they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and they took possession of houses full of good things. Cisterns that had already been hewn. Vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. And so they ate, and they were filled, and they became fat, and delighted themselves in your great goodness. And if the text stopped there, I couldn't relate much. But then it has verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient, and they rebelled against you. And they cast your law behind their back and they killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. God was so gracious and yet they rejected God's lordship in spite of all He gave them to help them worship. Now the Bible says God disciplines those He loves. It doesn't say He disciplines those He hates. He disciplines those He loves. And so I want you to look at verse 27. Jesus Christ, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever in the Old Testament, He looked down and He saw this people, and He loved those people, and He wanted those people to live differently, to live better, to live in the center of His will. In verse 27, He began to discipline them because He loves them. Therefore, God gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in time of their suffering, they cried back out to God, and God heard them from heaven. And according to God's great mercies, God gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. You see, for a season, under God's discipline, we, we sort of come to our senses. But soon, we start looking longingly again over God's protective fences, wondering, is the grass greener? Over there. Does verse 28 ring true for you? It does for me, and I wish it didn't. Verse 28, but after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. And yet when they turned and they cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies, not their worthies because they weren't worthy. Verse 29, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, and yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, and they sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder, stiffened their neck, and they would not obey. Now thank God we have a God who's slow to anger who abounds in love. Thank God we serve a God of grace. Thank God that His mercies triumph over the judgment that is due us. I want you to look at verse 30 again. The Bible says, Many years 
You bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, and yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end to them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Friends, we're disciplined, but we're not abandoned if we're His. God's chastening is as much an evidence of His love for us as is His bountiful supply. It is a good Father that disciplines the errant child so he isn't destroyed for lack of discipline. Which is why the psalmist can rightly write in Psalm 94. You might want to write it in your Bible. Psalm 94 says, Blessed is the man whom you discipline. O Lord, in whom you teach out of your law. Psalm 94, verse 12. You see, stiff necks require tough love, don't they? God dealt gently, and we ignored entirely, but He's so committed to making us a people worthy of walking with Him that He will shape us, and He'll use some friction, if need be, to make the knife edge sharp. Psalm 119, verse 67 is another verse you might want to write down. Psalm 119, verse 67 is correct that God's discipline can have a wonderful effect. The psalmist writes, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your... Sometimes we only learn when we run beyond the yard. Do you have a dog? You ever seen a dog with a shock collar? <laughs> and you have the shock collar so the dog doesn't get hit by the bus, doesn't get hit by the truck, doesn't get hit by... And all he wants in all of his life is to eat the Amazon driver <laughs> who lives just on the other side of that doggone fence. And the dog... And if there was no boundary, even though the master said, go this far and no farther, if there was no shock from that collar, Rover would wander until he was flattened. It's the shock from the collar that's the most loving thing from the master because it protects the one who's sometimes too dumb to know what he really should have. Now listen to how Nehemiah sums up God's righteous dealings with us. His rebellious but still precious children. He knows we're flawed, but he still loves us. Listen to verse 32. Now, therefore... Our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, not, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings and our princes and our priests and our prophets and our fathers and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria to this day. That is, since the first captivity, the Assyrians, and the second captivity of the Babylonians, and then the intervening time. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Is that a true verse, friends? God has always in my life acted faithfully. Many times, I have acted wickedly. This is the story of a rebellious people and the love of a loving God that patiently, passionately, relentlessly pursues rebellious sinners. And I thank God that that's who God is. One commentator summed up Nehemiah's final refrain like this. 
the people prayed, Lord, and all we've done, all we've gone through recently, including the 70 years of captivity and the challenges facing us presently, you've done right and we've done wrong. And so now we come to the brass tacks after surveying the facts. How are we going to react? Now that we understand God, we see His greatness and His goodness and His graciousness. Now that we understand ourselves and we see our neediness and our sinfulness, what will we do with these fundamental truths? Jesus tells us in Mark 4.24, pay attention to what you hear, for with the measure you use it, it'll be measured unto you. God wants you to do something, not just know something. Sermons are not just passive ingestion. They're active reflection that leads to action. James, in the book of James, admonishes us to prove ourselves doers of the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And that brings us to our last point today, point number three on our outlines. We need to properly reorient our lives in light of these truths. Maybe you were heading this way today and God's Word is saying, I want you this way. Maybe you were heading over that fence where the grass seemed greener and He wants you to return to the fence that He put there because He's wiser. We need to properly reorient our lives in light of these truths. Look at verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of our princes and Levites and our priests. You see, friends, their contrition was leading them to a commitment of consecration. A public commitment that they put in writing before their leaders. This contrition was leading them to a commitment of consecration. James says, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. That's what he says. Verses 1-28 through 28 spell out the parties, and verses 29-39 through 39 spell out the promises. So the first chunk is the parties promising, and the second chunk is the promises they're promising. In regards to the parties... All their leaders, from Nehemiah the governor in verse 1, to the priests in verses 2 through 8, to the Levites in verses 9 through 13, to all the other leaders in verses 14, all the way to 27. Ba -dum, ba -dum, ba -dum, ba -dum, ba -dum, ba dum, ba dum, everybody signed on the dotted line. And in regard to the promises, our, our reorientation involves a, a vigilance, a diligence, and a mutual commitment to encouragement of one another to walk faithfully with our great and gracious God. So, let's break these down so it's a little easier to remember. A, point A on your outline, under number three, we must be vigilant against worldly entanglements. We must be vigilant against worldly entanglements. Go back to chapter 9, and I want you to remember the setting of all this praying and confessing. Verse 
Chapter 9, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads, a sign of mourning and contrition. And the Israelites, they separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities before their fathers. They separated themselves out from those who didn't worship the one true God. This was not a racial separation. This wasn't a social stratification. This was a wise protection from spiritual pollution. God had made provision in Scripture that any foreigner who was willing to surrender and make God the one true God would be allowed in. So who were they putting out? They were putting out those who didn't worship the one true God. This isn't racial isolation. This isn't social isolation. This is a separation from those that would cause contamination who were double-minded and committed to something other than God's will. And, and so there's a, there's a kind of a principle here that we're to, we're to leave behind our, our old worldly wicked ways and, and start to walk in newness of life according to the author of life. I mean, if, you had to, if we had to come up with some symbolism, I suppose we could take a person and, I don't know, we could, we, could, we could dip them under and show that they're dead to sin and raise them up to... Oh wait, we're going to do that later. Because that is the picture. That's what it means to be a Christian. I'm a sinner, but I found a Savior and the old man is dead. And I've been raised to newness of life. Are you walking in newness of life? Look at the pledge of chapter 10. Look specifically to verses 30 and 31. Chapter 10, verses 30 and 31. The problem was worldly entanglements. The, the particular problem was that they were intermarrying with those who rejected the one true God. And so they make a pledge, they make a promise together. Verses 30, we will not give our daughters to the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. We're done with this. We keep getting snarled up in this, but we need to stop this. There were these worldly entanglements. There were these romantic enticements. There was the desire to live like and indeed live with the world. Now friends, the New Testament tells us we can't leave the world. We're supposed to be the light of the world. Our Lord Jesus was a friend to sinners and tax collectors. So it isn't abandon everyone who doesn't yet know Jesus. The thing is, our Lord was a friend to sinners and tax collectors, and so must we, but He never became a sinner because of the association. He always kept a separation. He was always willing to connect so they could meet the one true God, and yet He always allowed Himself not to be defiled by being among them. They were elevated. He was never denigrated. In your interactions with those who have yet to meet Jesus, are you the guy who's the catalyst pointing them upwards? Or is your presence there slowly pulling you downwards? And if so, you're going to need to make some careful consideration of those entanglements. Jesus was in the world, but not for a second was He of the world. And so are we to be. The Israelites were still in the world, but they weren't supposed to become worldly. Look at verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bring goods or grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on the holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the extraction of every debt. You see, the world wanted to sell its wares when God wanted worship. But God's people were to reject the world's path and follow God's better, narrower, holier path. And the world is always going to try, the Scripture says, to squeeze us into its mold. 
It's going to do it a hundred ways every day. Do you feel it? Do you feel the world compressing you to be conforming? The world says things like, have it your way right away. You could sell a lot of burgers with that slogan. They did. Have it your way right away. God's Word says, wait patiently on the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. Which one are you listening to? The world says, if you're warm for her form and you have the urge to merge, then you should just do as you please because you're only young once. They'll tell you that at school in sixth grade health class, which is now probably kindergarten health class. But God says, you know, I created sexual intimacy and I have something better in mind. And and so I'm going to encourage you, follow my design. And it's not just the Israelites who must practice separation from the world to avoid pollution. Turn in your Bibles for just a second to the New Testament. Turn to page 1229 in the New Testament to 2 Corinthians 6.14. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, page 12, 29. 2 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 14, says, Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion is a believer's share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And God has said, I will make my dwelling among them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty." Now, friends, put this in perspective. It isn't that we're not going to have dealings with unbelievers. We're supposed to. We're supposed to be salt and light, and our conversation is supposed to be full of grace. But there are certain entanglements that are so intimate that it's very difficult not to become corrupted by the engagement. And you're going to have to be careful in your life of where that line is. But there is a line. Or there wouldn't be 2 Corinthians 6, amen? There is a line. And yet, we want to win some, so we're going to be with them, but we don't want to become corrupted. We want to become an agent of grace in their lives. Friends, we must be vigilant against worldly entanglements. And B, we must be diligent in our faithful, sacrificial generosity to the work of the Lord. We must be diligent in our faithful, sacrificial generosity to the work of the Lord. Verse 31 is very clear on this. We are to forgo certain means of wealth accumulation. There are things we can do to make lots of money. Jerry's not leaving. He's a deacon. He's helping the people downstairs. We know you don't love money, Jerry. Anyway, uh, (laughs) verse 31 is clear. They were to forgo certain means of wealth accumulation. They were to reject trading on the Sabbath because in the Old Testament, God had forbidden it. They were to let their lands lie fallow on the years that were seventh because God in the Old Testament for those people had commanded it. They were to release the debtor every generation on the year of Jubilee and yet most of the time they refused to do so. Verse 32 is very clear. They were to pay their temple shekel that was needed to to hold together the, the, the worship of God at the temple at that time. Verse 34 is clear. They were to gather the wood so the fire of God's altar would never falter into smoke 
smoldering embers, but would always be sufficient to take all the offerings that were offered there. Verse 35 is clear. They were to obligate themselves to bring the first fruits of the ground and the first fruits of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. It's very clear. And so we see that real repentance affects our relationships, including our relationship with money. Jesus was spot on honest when He noted, you cannot serve two masters. You must choose between God and money. Repentance is more than, 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 than a feeling of contrition and a moment of confession. Those are aspects of repentance, but it's also a devotion to non-deviation. It's a consecration that attempts, so God help us, to avoid further pollution. It's an unswerving commitment to Christ that steadfastly rejects ongoing dilution. And friends, this is really hard, isn't it? God's not asking you to do this in your own strength. He's not asking you to do this alone. God has given us His Spirit to convict us, His Spirit to comfort us, and His Spirit to continually remind us of His truth. God has also given another powerful helper that's mentioned in our passage today to help you and I in our holiness. And you know what it is? It's our other brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why we can't do Christianity on our own terms and, 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 and worship of the you know, bedside Baptist and, 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 and come and do as we please and never really connect with the local body. Why? Because you're trying to hold on to your autonomy and God hasn't built Christianity to be autonomous. He's built it to be entirely dependent vertically on God and entirely vertic- or horizontally dependent on one another. And you're not going to have victory if you do it a different way than the king has told you to get victory. And so that brings us to point C today. We must encourage one another to walk with God together. We must encourage one another to walk with God together. Chapter 10 and verse 27 lists 84 leaders, if you take the time, leading the people in their pledge to renewed consecration. 84 leaders say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to help others do this. We're going to do this together. Verse 28 says, after those 84 leaders, then the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants. Verse 29, encourage them to join with their brothers, everybody, their nobles, and enter into an oath to walk in God's law and to observe all the commandments of the Lord. Verse 30 pledges, we... We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Verse 31 pledges... And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain or the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or the holy day, and we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the extraction of every debt. Verse 34 pledges again, we, the priests, the Levites, and the people, everybody, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at the appointed times, year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all our trees every year to the house of the Lord. Friends, we need one another. We need one another. We need to encourage one another to walk with the Lord or you will be squeezed into conformity by the world. You will be. Hebrews 3.13 in the NIV is how I remembered it, so that's what you're going to hear. 
Hebrews 3.13 is such a powerful verse. I've tried to tattoo it on my mind. Encourage one another daily. As long as it's called today. So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. I once heard the story of a man who would pray at church, pray in the prayer meeting, and he always ended his public prayers like this. And Lord, clean the cobwebs out of my life. Sounds pretty good. After many years of this man always praying this, you know, it's the Wednesday prayer meeting, it's Sunday morning, they're praying, and, and it's always, clean the cobwebs out of my, my life. Finally, there was a, another brother in church at that prayer meeting, and after years of hearing the same prayer, and really seeing no change in this guy's life, one day the man prayed, clean the cobwebs out of my life, and the other brother interjected, and Lord, kill that spider! Is there a spider in your life? You need the Lord to squish. Is there a spider in your life? You need the Lord to squish. Is there a a sin that easily entangles, as Hebrews says, and you find yourself again and again caught in its web? Alexander White was a powerful Scottish preacher in the late 1800s, and White famously said, the victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. The victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. Do you need a new beginning today? I do. The Apostle Peter did. The Apostle Paul did. In our text today, the great Governor Nehemiah did. Every single person in our passage today did. I love that Nehemiah's name was the first name on the list. Would you pray with me for a new beginning today? For a renewed consecration and commitment to holiness. Right about now, that old devil's whispering, Ha! You've done this kind of thing before. You've you've prayed these kind of things. You've said, I'm going to follow God. And you failed each time. Don't bother today. You're only going to fail again tomorrow. Well, that's the devil, not Jesus. Jesus is calling his people. He does it all throughout the Old Testament. They're going to fail again. By the time we get to chapter 13, they're going to have failed in everything they've pledged in chapter 9. He's still wanting them to pledge, and he's still wanting them to be faithful, and he'll take today, tomorrow's another day. Someone once asked the famous evangelist Billy Sunday if revivals lasted. And he replied, no. Neither does a bath. But it's good to have one occasionally. Would you go to Jesus with me this morning? With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to talk to those of you that already know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Then I'm going to talk to those of you that maybe haven't made that decision yet. If you've given Jesus your life and the enemy is trying to retake territory, there's a sin that easily entangles. It could be a sin of your lips, a sin of your eyes, a sin of your hands, a sin of your heart, a sin that everyone knows that you're battling in and a sin that no one but Jesus knows you're battling in. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would... Take us this morning to a place of contrition and conviction and consecration. If you want to talk to your Savior today, perhaps you could pray with me. Forgive me, Lord. I'm yours. You died for me. You've given me everything I've ever had and much more than I deserve. 
and my heart is prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I am prone to leave the God I love. Take Take and seal it. Seal it for Thy courts above. I ask right now, Lord Jesus, that You would help me to be more obedient and more holy in 2019 than I was in 2018. Help me to put You first and not when there's time. Help me, Lord, to reshuffle my priorities as they would be when I see things clearly. For now, I see things darkly. But one day, I'm going to see them face to face. And I would make the choice to worship you every single time if I could see in full what I now know in part. Give me the ability. Give me the wisdom. Give me the discernment. Give me the friends to one another when I need it. The willingness to talk to someone when I need it. The willingness to talk to someone when I think they need it in a way that's not judgmental or pharisaical, but in a way that's helpful, that we would encourage one another as long as it's called today, not beat one another. Help us, Lord, to be the body you would want us to be, that we would be a people that you want us to be, that we could lift up Jesus that others could meet him, because that's why you've left us here at this moment. Amen. Now, if you're here today with every head bowed and every eye closed, and maybe... Maybe this Jesus thing is new to you and you're trying to kind of figure it all out. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. Every single one of us is in that same situation. I'm a sinner. Grandma's a sinner. The Pope's a sinner. Billy Graham's a sinner. All of us need a Savior. That's why God sent His only begotten Son. Not to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. But to save the world through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, Romans 3.23. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now, a gift isn't something you can buy. A gift is something you can only receive. And so it takes humility. The Bible says we must humble ourselves before the Lord. If we are needy and we are sinful, then we can't fix our problem. But if God is good and God is great and God is gracious, then He can fix our problem. And we must say that you are God and we are not. And we are sinners and we need a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus. The only name under heaven by which we may be saved. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is God and God raised Him from the dead to show that He has power over sin and death and hell itself, and you are willing today to make Jesus the Lord of your life, the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord, you will be saved. If you'd like to do that today in the quietness of your heart, I'm going to pray. And you can pray with me. It's not a magical incantation. It's the sincere desire of your heart. You can pray like this. Father, forgive me, for I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. And I know there's no other than Jesus. And so I ask that you would cleanse me and that you would forgive me and that you would adopt me irrevocably into the family of God. I accept Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. And by your Spirit and by your grace, help me to live for Jesus all the days and all the ways. Make me on fire for your Son. Amen.